0: Every mailbag is different and every mailbag is the same. Every mailbag is different because every question is unique. And while some of them will overlap from one month or year to the next, a classic question like, how many stocks should I have in my portfolio being an example? Nevertheless, each question comes from a different person with their own unique view of the world, their own risk tolerance, their own time horizon. And Then, too, one mailbag comes after a great month for the market, while another mailbag comes after a bad day for the market. These rhythms and undulations guarantee that each mailbag is shaped in part by our circumstances, creatures of their times. Every mailbag is a snowflake. Every mailbag is different. And every mailbag is the same. Generally, six to ten points, all of them sourced from you, my dear listeners, we are a community, are we not, which is foolish and building every month, and we exhibit consistently recurrent good humor, recurrent insights. Your questions always bring a smile to my face and sometimes challenge me, and so I bring in Motley Fool analysts like this week's Aaron Bush and John Rotanti to help us all think deeper or round out the answers over and over again, and the aim, the same too, always, to make you smarter, happier, and richer every mailbag is the same. Oh, and different too. This one, more than any I can remember, is built on the bones of, well, I featured my own earlier this month, so it makes sense, on the bones of your pet peeves. Yep, I shared mine. Now you are sharing yours in and among discussion of inflation, cryptocurrency, tennis, and candy land. Every mailbag is the same and different, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David
0: Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you with me for this mailbag episode, September 2021. I want to mention in advance what we'll be doing next week because I'm particularly soliciting your input, your wisdom. About once a year on this podcast, we've done a recurrent series called Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks. And it's about that time of the year. Yep. We last did one October 14th of last year. We're going to be cruising into October next week. And I say it's time for another Tips, Tricks, and Life Hacks. Now, I've got my own. I'll be bringing some of the best I have in mind right now, but I would love your best. Do you have a tip, a trick, or a life hack? That you can share with all your fellow rule breakers. I bet you do. Think about it and email us, rbi at fool.com. The most helpful and interesting, the most compelling tips, tricks, and life hacks will be featured on next week's Rule Breaker Investing. Very much looking forward to that. Again, our email address, rbi at fool.com. And now back to mailbag and thinking about this month's mailbag. This is the first out of our 50 plus mailbags where I really did not receive a single note that wasn't worthy of this mailbag. In the past, sometimes I'll get, I don't know, incomprehensible notes or sometimes notes that are far too long to share. But the 26 pages that I read of submissions for this month, for the first time, every single one of them could have fit on this podcast. So I think that says something great about how well we're communicating because you already have a good sense if you're a past listener of what I'm looking for for mailbag. But occasionally I throw out some tips like don't write me anything that goes on more than two pages or a few others you're listening and it's just tuning and tweaking the mailbag into a delight to read through and a real challenge to think through in terms of what I should feature from one month to the next. After all, every mailbag is different and every mailbag is the same. And yeah, you know, I was thinking briefly about this as I put together this week's show because I thought about Scott McCloud. He wrote a wonderful book. Some of you no doubt have read it. It's called Understanding Comics. Scott is a brilliant thinker, and the book itself is a comic book, uh, but it's a it's it's a deep dive into what makes for art, and and why in some senses comics tell stories so well. It's a wonderful read. I probably read it 15 years ago or so. But one of the things I remember that McLeod does in his book is he really democratizes the concept of what is art. Turns out, at least in his mind, and yes, I'm part of his school now, in my mind, there's a lot more art all around us all the time than we would recognize. In a sense, it's the creativity that we bring to the small moments in life not every artistic effort, therefore, is Michelangelo worthy, but also not every artistic effort needs to be as earnest as somebody like Michelangelo was no doubt at the start of one of his sculptures or paintings. And I was thinking about this because just the decision about how to put together a mailbag, or even that we have a mailbag, those are those are creative choices. And as I put together this week's show, I realized there were so many good incoming pet peeves that amused me so much that I should just create a rhythm for this particular mailbag of serious point. Those will be oddly numbered, like one, three, five, seven, nine, and then peeve to share. Two, four, six, and eight on the even points. So that's the rhythm, the uniqueness of this particular mailbag. But whether it's a pet peeve podcast or the market cap game show, or How about just the Stock Stories series? Just the very notion that we would gather around a virtual campfire and tell stories on a stock-picking podcast or our great quotes or next week's mental tips, tricks, and life hacks. All of those are creative choices, and I'm not putting myself out as a brilliant artistic producer, but I am pointing out it is an act of creativity. And if you're a podcaster, even your choice of what word to use from one minute to the next is creative. And so that's my own Orientation as I thought about this week's podcast, it's all it's going to be all well half the time about about pet peeves, but I think back to some of my favorites recently. Um, we had a theme that emerged from one of our mailbags earlier this year about working with elderly parents, loving our elderly parents. That just happens spontaneously some of the submissions I got that month and connecting them. I'm going to be doing that a little bit later this show with mailbag item number five. I'm going to be welcoming in Aaron Bush and John Rotanti because we got some questions about inflation and currencies and cryptocurrencies. And I thought, let's weave that together into a bigger conversation. So point number five is maybe the most exploratory and deadly serious in a very, very silly month for mailbag. There was also that one, was it a year or two ago? Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, where I realized the whole mailbag should just be one story after another from many different people from motley different walks of life. So this, I guess, this particular week is in that same artistic tradition of something a little bit special arising spontaneously from what you have sent in this month. Every mailbag is the same, and we often have a few hot takes from Twitter. This one is no exception. I got three for you this week. Let's go with Ryan Treader at Treader86. number of great tweets from you this past month, Ryan, but I like this one a lot. Learning the true definition of an investor, in quotes, has been a revelation for me along my journey. When I first experienced the stock market, all of the so-called experts I came across were basically pushing day trading or swing trades. No one was talking about buying good companies to hold. Well, that is an excellent realization, Ryan. I do think that there's a lot more talk about trading because, in part, it's exciting. It's it's day-to-day. It's, it's a swing trade for the week, and so it tends to get people's attention versus you and I passively saving every two weeks from our paychecks something to put, I hope, toward some of the better companies or at least funds, if you will, uh, that we think will help shape the future. So that's not as exciting, I guess, as somebody's trade or somebody's NFL bet. Hot take number two, the frequently recurring on this podcast at Jiminy Jilliker's Jason Moore. Always fun to follow what you're saying on Twitter. You went back and listened to an episode from a past mailbag of February, mailbag of your Allison Southwick is on, and she delivered this line, which you requote, which I want to requote because I love it. She said, You will never be the smartest person in the room or the best looking person in the room, but you can always be the kindest person in the room. End quote. I love that sentiment. And I'm happy to say, Allison Southwick herself, at Alison Southwick on Twitter, she responded back just this past month. Fun fact, Allison wrote, you can also choose to be the meanest person in the room, but it's so much more exhausting. And another very commonly shared sentiment this past month on Twitter, reacting, of course, to the Market Cap Game Show with Brian Feroldi and Brian Stoffel. I'll just quote at 307 fool who said, if you've never listened to the Rule Breaker Investing podcast, you're missing out this week's amazing combination of Brian Faroldi, Brian Stoffel, and of course, David is can't miss listening. You will laugh, you will learn, and you will improve your day for sure. It's the Market Cap Game Show. A lot of you tweeting out, I beat Brian, and that was wonderfully ambiguous, but anybody who's actually listened to the episode understands exactly what is meant by the phrase, I beat Brian. A lot of Brian's sentiments on this month's Market Cap Game Show. And before we get to Rule Breaker mailbag item number one, I just wanted to answer this quick question from Bruce Clark, writing in from Daytona Beach, Florida. He said, Hello, David, the voice of the woman behind both the opening and closing remarks on your Rule Breaker Investing podcast. I'm curious if this is the voice of your wife, Margaret Gardner. Well, Bruce, you and I and Tom all met at the Westin right next to Fool headquarters back in the day. Really back in the day, you mentioned buying some of our paperbacks in the 1990s. I'm delighted that you're now invested with Motley Fool Wealth Management, and I'm happy to let you know that is certainly not my wife. That is Denise Corsi, a longtime employee of the Motley Fool who lent her voice seven years ago when we started the podcast to the opening. Of course, Rick Engdahl's magic adding in the sound of rules being broken, as I think a lot of us will recognize or a window, if you will, kind of round things out for our modest intro. A few things I want to say about Denise. First of all, she's no longer at our company, but was with us for a long time. So we all kind of missed Denise. Second, she was a martial artist at a high black belt level. Can't remember which of the martial arts. Never had to find out myself directly in person. And the last thing I want to say about her is to my knowledge, she's not a professional voice actor, although she did say she may have done some freelance gigs. Well, she certainly did one for us. We're grateful each week for Denise's voice. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number one. A quick reminder, the odd number ones are serious. The even number ones this week are a little bit silly. This is number one. Hi, David. My name is Sam Verbeek, a professional tennis player from Amsterdam, the Netherlands. It was my goal this year to learn about and start investing in the stock market. After having tried and not continued in the past few years, my dad sent me a link to fool.com to see what I could pull as learning resources. Needless to say, The Motley Fool immediately caught my attention. It's continued to do so in the past few months. I now have been a member of Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers since May, have started a portfolio of around 30 stocks, and have subscribed to all podcasts by The Motley Fool. Sam continues, I'm 27 years old now. I would love to be playing tennis professionally for at least the next five years, during which I am super excited to see how my portfolio will grow with me. In many ways, professional tennis is like the stock market. If I focus on my results week to week or even month to month, my stress levels would go through the roof. If I don't win the tournament, I lose every tournament at some point. Sometimes you lose a match while you play the best tennis of the year so far, feeling like you had a great earnings report, but seeing the stock plunge because of short-term expectations. However, if I focus on my level and the underlying principles of improving, the results will follow. That doesn't mean the work stops. It just means that you focus on the habits and principles that usually produce the best results. Like in business, Those are the people around you, your mission, and your purpose, your long-term philosophy. And from all other fools out there, these are all applicable in many areas of life, including sports. It would be an honor if you could speak about something I read in the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, earlier this year. Just like diversifying your portfolio, it feels like diversifying my learning is also important. Now, in that book, the author says this, quote, Frequently, my broker calls and recommends I move a sizable amount of money into the stock of a company that he feels is just about to make a move that will add value to the stock. I will move my money in for a week to a month while the stock moves up. Then I pull my initial dollar amount out and stop worrying about the fluctuations of the market because my initial money is back and ready to work on another asset. And... Quote, that's our correspondent, Sam Verbeek, quoting from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Sam continues, personally, the idea of being in a stock only for the short term doesn't sit well with me. At the same time, your perspective and advice on it would be great. If there is a stock that has doubled for you and there's another stock that you'd like to buy and feel strongly about for the long term, should one consider pulling the initial investment out of the doubler and buy the new stock with that money? or should the process of compounding never be unnecessarily interrupted? Many thanks for all you've done and continue to do for everyone wanting to learn around the world. I'm currently in the process of listening to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast from the very first episode, and I look forward to continuing that process. A big fan from Amsterdam, Sem Verbeek. Well, Sam, first of all, what a wonderful note. It's always a delight to get a note from somebody who's this young and this smart, this disciplined, and already taking such positive actions for your financial future. And I mean future writ large. You're already generating in the present earnings. I see that you are number 111 on the World Tour, the ATP. So you are an awfully good tennis player with Many good years ahead of you. You are now my favorite tennis player. And anybody else who didn't have a rooting interest in tennis, but wants to cheer on a fellow fool here who's asking some great questions about investing, I would say Sam Verbeek is our new favorite tennis player. Also, you're a pretty handsome guy, too, Sam, an easy guy to cheer for. So, congratulations on your success up till now. I love that your dad got you thinking about investing. Not only that, but I love your analogies drawing. From the world of sports and your life and how it kind of matches to the market and it reminds me of people like frank reich the nfl head coach of the indianapolis colts or i'll mention the Molly fool recently began sponsoring a golfer on the pga tour sebastian munoz again casual sports fans if you're looking for a golfer to cheer well from one sunday to the next watching the final day of whatever the last week's great golf tournament was Sebastian Munoz, but you know what it's reminding me is that so much of what works in sports and the mentality that you just shared with us, Sem, does indeed work in investing. Especially, I see you talking about not overrating very near term developments, positive or negative. I easily see how that can make a lot of sense, especially in a sport where it's just you in tennis. You might have a doubles partner, but a lot of these matches are one on one. Singles. My favorite sport, baseball, has a little bit more of that dynamic. I think it's in part why I like it, but certainly other sports that are much more a collective, like football or basketball, or of course, soccer or football around the world, all of those are much more team oriented. But I think, especially as investors, it is kind of our savings and our money that we're putting. And I think people tend to listen to this podcast alone or individually while maybe playing tennis as opposed to in large groups. So it's a reminder that. A lot of solitary activities come down to your mindset. And I think your mindset in tennis beautifully maps to how you should think about your money. I'm seeing a triangle, a triangle with all three sides whispering in my ear. My producer, Rick, just reminded me that's an equilateral triangle. So all three sides. And one of the points is investing mindset. And that's what we're talking about. It connects to another of the points in the triangle, which is an athlete's mindset. There's a real connection between those, and your your note is beautifully evocative of that. The third one, I'm just going to call character, because I think great character clearly leads to great sports achievement. Most of the people who have done remarkable things athletically, it's because a lot of it is their character, their resilience, the way they compete against themselves. Sometimes it's their generosity or kindness within the context of the sport or others that they coach. A lot of these things are character traits that lead people to be great at sports. And I also believe the same thing. Your character and your mindset is what sets you up for your investing life. So I think the reason that so many people like Frank Reich and Sam Verbeek and I think Sebastian Munoz that they do so well is because they're connected to great character as athletes, and then they recognize that they can make that all play out financially with their mindset. So, Sam, you're a great example. To give you a quick answer now to your question, uh, I've never read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't have a lot of interest in the book. I do, do recognize it is a seminal work that many people have read, and it's a very conservative work, as it's been described to me. It's very focused on real estate, which can be a good investment, but the part that you pulled out, talking about getting a call from a broker in order to establish a short-term position in something someone thinks might go up. Well, by the way, it might not. But even if it does, the idea that you would then trade out is so antithetical to Motley Fool Investing, to our mindset, buy-to-hold investing, focused, business-focused investing. That's really obviously Where we butter our bread. We've done very well with it. I think we've exemplified that to the world. There are other ways to approach the markets. I'm never going to say ours is the only one that works, but it certainly does work. And I think it works for the most people. You don't have to be a professional institutional trader or have access to real time quotes to make a lot of money as a foolish investor. So I would certainly encourage you in closing then not to follow the advice from your anecdote. Again, I don't know the context of where it appears in the book or if that was truly the intent of that passage, but I am not a fan of establishing a short-term position in the market and then selling out your original portion and just leaving whatever's left there to see how it does. I'm much more interested in you and I making our portfolio reflect our best vision for our future. I'm a fan of buying positions and holding them for a minimum of three years, if not three decades. And I think it matters a lot what you're owning. You want to be able to tell your grandchildren one day, not only did you win Wimbledon, but you want to tell them that the brokerage statement that perhaps they'll be inheriting part of one far-flung day from now was populated by companies that you were a part owner of and that made the world better over the course of your life. Sam, best of luck out there on the circuit. We're cheering for you. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number two, which means I'm about to introduce a listener's pet peeve. Now, I will say I have four of these items this week, and they're going to get, to me anyway, increasingly amusing and provocative. So that isn't to say Jeff Brown from Blue Springs, Missouri. This isn't a great pet peeve. I like it a lot. That's why it's on the podcast, but they could get even crazier as we go. All right. Hi, David. I always enjoy your pet peeves episodes, they are both humorous and can also cause me to look at things differently. I've even adopted a few of yours over the years. And by the way, I really like yours here, Jeff, so the feeling is mutual. But on this month's Pet Peeves episode, Jeff Brown writes, you committed one of mine. You said, quote, why does science fiction always need to be dystopian? End quote. My pet peeve, writes Jeff, is the use of the words always and never. So often these words are used and applied to things that aren't always or never in the way that they happen. I know they're frequently used to try to emphasize that the event happens often or not very often, but this can also lead to miscommunication. Jeff closes, I emphasize this with my daughters as they were growing up and now they're quick to point out if I slip up And one of those words is used in an improper instance. Thank you for your podcast, as I always get some benefit from listening, whether it makes me smarter, happier, or richer. Jeff Brown, Blue Springs, Missouri. I totally agree. In fact, I always agree, Jeff. I I would never not agree with you. And I'm obviously having fun. I am a big fan of moderating our language. And I do try to be attendant to that. I didn't have a good dad like you who was tweaking me about that. And so I can't tweak my dad back about this, but I think that's a great dynamic with your daughters. And I certainly encourage everybody, of course, everybody listening to me, but all my friends and family to improve any aspect of what I'm doing in life. I'm very open to being coached. You've given me some excellent coaching there. I will try to use always and never only when they're appropriate but you know I'm going to screw it up from time to time. Because, yes, we do like to emphasize certain things, and so we overclock our language to do so. And so, guilty as charged. Before we move on to Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number three. This does put me in mind, though, of that pet peeve once again. Why does science fiction, I'll tweak it now, why does science fiction so frequently need to be dystopian? And I'd meant to say this on the Pet Peeves episode, but I forgot at the time. I wanted to point out that actual disasters, like when actually really bad things happen uh, in the present or a future, usually, my experience is usually this brings out the best in people. And that's why I further part ways with this notion that so much of our science fiction should be dystopian, because truly, in my experience anyway, actual disasters usually bring out the best in people. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag item number three. This one got a couple of these here packed into point number three, reacting to I fought the law and the law won as we went and learned some new laws together earlier this month. And I got some great notes. This one from David Secrets. Thank you, David, for your recent Rule Breaker podcast. The day after I listened in my daily Apple news feed was the following. And here's the headline that David is pointing to. It says, Can America's fastest supercomputer defeat COVID for good? That's the headline from Popular Mechanics. We both know the answer to the question, says David Seacrest. And if you remember Betteridge's Law, which is that generally when you're reading media headlines that are phrased as a question, the answer almost always is the word no. You're right. We both do know the answer to this question, Dave. To say it one more time, this is from Popular Mechanics, by the way. Can America's fastest supercomputer defeat COVID for good? No. And on a related note, Betteridge's Law, this was a tweet that came in from Randy at FixedOn66 this past month. He wrote, While researching a bad drop today for one of my Rule Breaker winners, Viva, I found this article to which I can already answer no, according to Betteridge's Law of Headlines. And of course, Randy has selected a motley fool story whose headline is this. Could Viva Systems stock help you retire a millionaire? Smiling, says Randy. Well, I hope it could. So maybe occasionally there are exceptions to Betteridge's Law, right? Doesn't every law need an exception? I don't know. But I really appreciate, Randy and David, how you picked up on and understood the true spirit of Betteridge's Law. And if that's new material for anybody, the podcast that started this month, I Fought the Law and the Law Won. Speaking of laws, one other, before we move on to mailbag item number four, this one comes from my friend Matt Ellis. Now, Matt works as a vice president of business development at The Motley Fool. Well, actually, he works for The Ascent, which is a Motley Fool service. And he slacked me this, and I said, please email that to me as a mailbag item because I'll share it on the show. It's perfect. This one speaks to Parkinson's law. For those who may not remember, Parkinson's law is generally the law that we will allow work to, to expand however much space and time we give it. It will expand to fill that space and time. Hey, David writes, Matt, just finishing listening to your I Fought the Law podcast while in the middle of moving into a house that we've been renovating for a year. I tell you this because your mention of Parkinson's Law made me laugh out loud as of course today is the deadline for the house to be done And there are 15 people here trying to finish it up. Well, just last night, my wife and I had been talking about, should we have extended our rental to buy the contractor more time? And the conclusion was no. If we had, we would still be going through the same thing. Glad to know it has a name Parkinson's law. And I hear you, Matt. Yep. Whether you'd given them six months, 12 months, or 18 months, there would probably still be 15 people in the house that last day. So we need to be intentional about the time that we give work because turns out that's exactly how much time we'll probably spend on it. All right. Thus much for I fought the law and the law One. Let's move on to rule breaker mailbag item number four. This one comes from Arvind Sharma. David, I'm a relatively new follower of you about 18 months and now a subscriber of many premium services of the Fool. And since I started listening to your podcast the past year or so, I've learned a lot listening from you. Also, thank you for the mailbags you do. It's comforting to know one is not alone. Anyway, I will share my learning experience another day. Now, coming back to the pet peeves. How are we doing today, writes Arvind. Well, I feel the same when someone says, and I love this, and I agree with you, Arvind. That's why I'm sharing your pet peeve on this podcast. When someone says, no problem in the hospitality and customer service industries. You bought something at a store. You've taken a paid service from someone. In the end, you thank the person by saying, thank you. And you get a response, no problem. I really wish, Arvind says, that they would say, you're welcome, or it's my pleasure instead. And I have to admit, I know I've done this. I bet you, dear listener, have done this too, but I think we can rise above that. I really do agree that one of the best things we can say when someone says thank you is, you're welcome, or you're so welcome. That's more of a Southernism that I hear a lot around North Carolina when I go visit. You're so welcome. It's a delightful thing. Rather, No problem. Or the much more common these days, I would say, no worries. As if you were worrying in the first place, or maybe the worst of all, this isn't the same prompt. This isn't a response to thank you. But when you ask somebody if they'd like something and their response is this, "I'm good." And I often say, "Okay, yeah. And also, would you like this thing that I'm offering you?" "I'm good" is not actually an answer to the question being asked. So I think we can all be a little bit more aware, a little bit more precise with our language. It just sounds lovelier to me. If somebody says, "Would you like this thing?" you say, "No, thank you." Not I'm good. And if they try to thank you, you don't say no worries or no problem. Thanks, Arvind Sharma. All right. Well, if you're keeping score at home, we're now up to Rule Breaker mailbag item number five, which means we're about to move back from the silly to the sublime. I've been rubbing my hands together this show because I'm so happy to have my two friends, Aaron Bush and John Ratanti, on to talk through Rule Breaker mailbag item number five. Now, John, in particular, is making his Rule Breaker Investing podcast debut. So whatever the sound is that Rick Engdahl will create to celebrate the debut of a new guest, a longtime Motley Fool talent, but a new guest to the show, Rick will play that sound now. Excellent. All right. So Aaron and John, I have you guys in because I want to talk through. I'm calling it mailbag item number five, but there's actually several conversations here. If I put it under a single rubric... I maybe, maybe I would say currency, cash, something along those lines, but several different emails re- we received at RBIPool.com this past month kind of spoke to one another. I want us to speak to it. I don't know where we're headed with this one, but before we get there, let me make sure we have quick introductions. Aaron Bush, you've been on the show before, but I'm not sure I've ever asked you, by way of an introduction, a pet peeve of yours.
2: David. First of all, thanks for having me. But what I cannot stand is scales that start with one instead of zero. Like if someone asks me rate this stock on a scale of one to (laughs) ten, I'm just like, no, it starts at zero to ten. That's like asking from two to eleven or like ten percent to one hundred percent. What if I want to get five percent? How do I how do I do that? That leads to all sorts of complex math and proportions you have to weigh that I just. I just don't want to do that. You know, I hadn't. I, I, I've always tried to go zero to ten, but without real force or intention.
0: But now, from now on, I am part of your tribe on this one, Aaron. I love it. I totally agree. Five percent can't be expressed if we're starting at one, getting to ten. That's so true. So your your pet peeve has just become. I'm not even going to say mine. All of ours. So thank you for that, Aaron. And before we welcome on John with his pet peeve, whatever it's going to be. Aaron, I think a lot of us will know you as the returning constant champion of the market cap game show. We did that just a couple of weeks ago this month without you included, because I didn't want you to beat everybody again. And we had fun with the two Brian's. but you'll certainly be back. We all know you're an ace that way. I know you as a fellow rule breaker. Could you just give a couple of sentences about what you're doing at The Fool today?
2: Sure. I um, look over a handful of services. I am co-advisor of Rule Breakers, um, Blastoff the portfolios that you know aim for maximum upside as well as our platinum service which um oversees um, all the different rule breaker services kind of fold up um into that one so that is what my focus is on at the motley fool sounds like you're a
0: pretty busy guy these days aaron you always were but you sound even busier and i know you got married in just it was less than two months ago so congratulations on all that you're doing here in 2021 I'm Thank very you, grateful. Thank you. John Ratanti, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for having me, David. I'm thrilled to be on with you and Aaron. John, I've spent countless hours watching you on Motley Fool Live. Love the morning show. Thank you for all your efforts. Not just the morning show, of course, but I think that's an iconic place for you within uh, Fooldom today. And it's been a, just a delight. John, what was your first day at The Fool? You joined our analyst development program. I think these days you help run it, but when was that?
1: July of 2014. So I've been here almost you know, seven and a half years, let's say, a little over seven years.
0: That's amazing. And I know you began to work remotely, still full-time, um, before it was cool. Before right? it was you... cool. I, I was at full headquarters for two years and then went remote uh, when
1: we opened an office in Colorado.
0: There we go. And But are you now in New Orleans?
1: Do I have that I, right? I did. During the, during the pandemic, I moved to New Orleans where we have an office here as well. Congratulations! We have, a, we have a we have you know we're registered here in the state of Louisiana.
0: That's right. The Molly Fool can do business not in all fifty states, right. but in a bunch of them these days, uh, enabling us to get some of the best talent available that wouldn't always necessarily have been able to come to Alexandria, Virginia, or Denver, Colorado. Well, John, I'm delighted that you you are a part of that vanguard. You were an early mover and shaker to get us to be more remote focused. John, what is a pet peeve of yours? Mine's not going to be as as groundbreaking
1: as Aaron's. I do I do agree that Aaron's is a universal pet peeve. Um, I don't. I guess a pet peeve of mine is 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 mean people or jerks and and people that try to turn every in, issue into um, something that has to be so divisive, right? Like I think we build these hard lines around so many issues in our lives, and it's not just like political. Like there's people that are like really diehard keto, or like Totally against keto, and they and they don't get along, or like really diehard CrossFit, or like totally against CrossFit, and they don't get along. It's like, oh, if you're not in my tribe, then you don't get it. Yeah. And so I, I just wish we would soften our lines mm. a bit and like have some more common ground. False All dichotomies.
0: Said. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. Well said, John. Thank you, Aaron. John, what are you doing at the pool these days?
1: So I'm uh, I'm a senior analyst. I'm also the head of investor training and development. And then I'm the host or co-host of two shows on Motley Fool Live, The Morning Show and My Investing Life, of
0: which you've been on both. Thank you, John. Yes, indeed. We've had a lot of fun there. And we're gonna have fun this week on this podcast. Because, gentlemen, I want to start with the first of three notes in for this mailbag item. And the first one comes from Robert Skuya. He writes, David, first of all, I really enjoy the authors in August. Thank you, Robert. Hearing different perspectives and thinking about topics in a different way really is enjoyable and making me smarter. And probably happier and richer too. I put a couple of books from last year on my Christmas list. I will likely do the same this year. Well, that makes me feel really good, Robert. Thank you. Authors in August is something that I always look forward to, getting those different perspectives that you're speaking to. Picking Robert's note back up. I don't know how many complaints you've had for the hour plus length, but you won't hear one from me. You answered a question for me about a year and a half ago. I thank you for that. Between your answer and one I had answered on the Answers podcast, I've learned. Robert says that I'm a very, very much a binary thinker. Questions must either be. Oh, my gosh, John Rotani. Is this is this your <laughs> <Uh-oh. petty>? questions <laughs> must either be, says Robert Scuya, either a yes or a no. But usually there is an area in between which I've been trying to find in everyday decisions. Therefore, my question today, Robert writes, I will leave very open ended a one word question. Inflation. And there's a little bit more to Robert's note than that, but I kind of love how he framed the whole thing up. So I'm just going to turn to Aaron first, and I'm going to say, Aaron, inflation.
2: <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll read into this a little bit and maybe kind of twist it into like where we think things are going. How do we think about inflation to kind of inform what we do about it, if anything, Um To which I would start by saying that, in my opinion, I don't think anyone really understands inflation. Um, Not only are our measurements, especially CPI, a bit old school, in my opinion, but inflation really is an output of a complex adaptive system with trillions of constantly evolving inputs. So not even the best supercomputers can compute exactly how things will play Mm. out, especially when crazy things like COVID last year can happen at any time. So I won't pretend to be able to predict it. That said... um, You know, not all general observations are necessarily rocket science. There's supply and demand at play. If the supply of dollars outpaces the demand for dollars or whatever currency, then the purchasing power of the dollar or whichever currency erodes. And when the money printer is printing on high gear, uh, you know, it very likely could lead to some type of inflation or some greater level of inflation in time. Um, And I would say the U S government has been printing a lot of money lately. So I would guess that we probably will see above average inflation, although I would not want to get specific about any, um, any guesses. The last thing I'll say about this, I'm curious um, to hand this over to John is that it's important to remember, like, again, kind of going into gray zone that inflation never really occurs equally across categories. On one hand, Industries that are heavily regulated, or perhaps um, like commodity-driven, um, they they tend to face more ongoing inflation due to things like regulatory capture. And on the other hand, innovation and technological progress can can sometimes push prices down. Like we yeah. see that with TVs, for example, in the physical world. But more importantly, in the world, the digital world of bits, due to dear um, zero. Uh, marginal costs of growth things and things like software prices can often fall with scale which is deflation so mm. as an investor I, I you know i you know i hear and understand the popular take that it's important to buy shares in companies that have pricing power and can easily raise prices to combat inflation and that's True and, and good in a lot of cases, but I'm I'm honestly just as enamored by companies whose pricing power comes from lowering prices and innovating and growing volumes in huge ways. Wow. Um, like with like with Amazon Web Services or you know what we see with lowering prices and genetic sequencing. And these types of companies playing their own game strike me as more immune to rising prices elsewhere and And the economy. And you know, the best way to hedge inflation maybe isn't a hedge, it's just to find the things that go up a lot. That's (laughs) that would be kind of my my final opinion on that. Well, thank you for taking us to that place, Aaron. You said about five really interesting things there. We might get a chance to
0: touch back on them. But next I want to turn to John Ratanti. John, I'm gonna ask you the same question I asked Aaron. You ready? I'm ready. Inflation?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to largely agree with Aaron. I'm not smart enough to um, have an opinion with any degree of conviction whether the higher inflation that we are seeing right now is is sustainable or not. Um, in inflation readings, even though they may be flawed, as Aaron pointed out, are, are higher than normal. Uh, the Federal Reserve has stated that it wants inflation to run hotter than its 2% target for a period of time in order to bring the long-term average back up to 2%. So this isn't terribly unexpected. Whether it's long-term or not, I'm just not uh, smart enough to know. I will say that um, stocks have historically been the best asset class to hedge against inflation, if hedging is the word that we want to use. There's a Deutsche Bank long-term asset return study. Um, and it looks at returns going back uh, 200 years, actually. And it looks at it looks at stocks, various corporate bonds. Um, it looks at treasury bonds. It looks at um, home prices. And it looks at gold. And pretty much over any period going back 200 years, 150 years, 100 years, 75, 50, all the way up until recent times, pretty much stocks provide the best returns. Um, Outperformance relative to those, to those other asset classes over a long periods of time, stocks provide seven percent real return. So that means real, meaning above inflation. The stock market has returned about nine to ten percent before inflation, and then about seven percent after inflation. So stocks are a great hedge. Um, but as Aaron said, there's no doubt that tech, that technology and innovation is also contributing to deflation. There's no doubt that Amazon Web Services. And Shopify is making it cheaper to start a business. There's you know, no doubt that Airbnb um, and other online web vertical market search engines for travel are making it cheaper to, 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 to take vacations. Mm. No doubt Netflix is making it cheaper to consume video rather than going out to a movie. Uh, or or Google's making it cheaper to consume information rather than having a library card you know, and drive into the library. So there's, there's no doubt that technology is deflationary in a way, as Aaron said. Where we end up, I don't know, but I
0: like stocks for the long term. Well, I think we all do. And ultimately, a lot of this is shorter term in that, well, I mean, I'm 55. So I think I've lived through, I'm going to make this up eight different economic cycles. And so if you're investing for a lifetime, then even if one of those cycles lasts seven years, it's a tiny part of your investing life, John Rotanti. And so for me, I've never spent a lot of time worrying about it too much. I will say having grown up in the 70s and 80s, double digit inflation, that made a real impression um, on a generation, I think. And yet, as you point out, stocks were a good thing to be in through the 70s, especially the 80s. Uh, and, and the 90s, by the way, also the aughts and the teens and now here we are in the 20s and i think we've been re- rewarded for just looking longer than the inflation hawks it is though very distinctive to this era that those deflationary pressures i think a lot of people who've spent a lot of a lot more time looking at macroeconomics than i have were expecting big inflation in 2012 15 18 21 that hasn't shown up largely i think because guys those deflationary pressures those are really big big pressures. You talked, John, about Shopify and Amazon, starting a business or the entertainment industry. I remember Chris Anderson, the former uh, editor of Wired Magazine, wrote a book called Free, The Future of a Radical Price. That was it. And so it's it's really one of those, to me, zeitgeist feelings for me. Spirit of the age was that stuff got a lot cheaper in so many ways that we really should appreciate as consumers and you have to respect and understand uh, as observers.
1: For sure. And 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 the internet has brought about, and the smartphone has brought about price transparency. Yeah. So if you're buying an, a, an appliance at Home Depot or Lowe's, you can instantly compare that price of the appliance anywhere else, online or another store, brick and mortar store.
0: Great point. Great point. All right. Let me move on to a second letter coming in to keep the currency talk going here. We're going to go a little bit of a different direction. Aaron Bush, I'm looking in particular at you. I bet John is too. You spent a lot of time looking at this. This is kind of one of those Bitcoin questions. So let's introduce this question from Nikhil J from California. Nikhil, hi, David and RBI team. A question, given the projections of Bitcoin to appreciate, now I'm not sure what projections exactly, gentlemen, he's referencing, but let's just assume there are projections that they might be his own or those of the world at large. It has appreciated pretty well over the last 10 years or so. Given the projections of Bitcoin to appreciate and the Motley Fool's own investment of million U.S. That's correct. My brother Tom announced that we were buying $5 million of Bitcoin. This was months and months ago. But anyway, he says, do you view Bitcoin as a threat to the Motley Fool as a company? I mean, people just continue investing into Bitcoin, which is projected to outperform equity investors. Again, I'm not sure where that projection comes from. Then it becomes simple and easy, but it takes away from what the Motley Fool can offer. There's a little bit more to it than that. Uh, this ultimately isn't a question about the Motley Fool. I, I feel secure in what we're doing. We're trying to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. That includes advice around Bitcoin. And Aaron Bush has brought as much of that as anybody at our company. But Aaron, you once broke down sort of the six traits of a rule breaker as you thought through Bitcoin. And you said, yeah, Bitcoin itself is kind of a, a rule breaker. So, Aaron, Bitcoin itself, a rule breaker. I just want to start by asking you, do you still feel the same way? What are your thoughts right now here in at the end of September 2021 about
2: BTC? Yeah, I mean, I think Bitcoin definitely was and still is a rule breaker. But I also would extend the conversation to say that also Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency, is also a rule breaker and also potentially um, crypto. As an asset class, is potentially a rule-breaking asset class, um, and you know you can go in and nitpick different things. And some projects will be great and interesting, and others will flame out. But um, there's a lot of interesting technology shifts, business model shifts, et cetera, going on in the in the world of crypto. And you sort of ask, you know, is it a threat to the Motley Fool? Um, I, I'm with you. I don't think it is, at least anytime soon. If anything, I view it more as an opportunity. It's not every day that you see um, an emerging Mm -hmm. asset class that is real, you know, take off and get some traction and actually, um, you know, have a lot of smart people and a lot of money flowing around in it. And, you know, if you have enough smart people, enough capital, enough momentum, usually there's something there that's going to turn into something big. And I think, um, crypto is probably going to be something big. So, yeah, I mean, I think we at the Motley Fool can, um, can step up our game, continue to step up our game to to continue providing more context, advice, um, you know, just helping people become smarter, happier and, and richer around the context of crypto hmm. and how it plays in both and how it's just changing the business landscape in certain ways or how or how it might continue to grow its its influence in the future, but also how it might play a role in investment portfolios. Thank you. And certainly we have
0: talked some about that in the past and will note, no doubt in the future. But here we are in the present talking some more about it right here. John, one of the things in Nikhil's note that uh, I noted and probably you did, too, is projections and the concept of you know people projecting Bitcoin to go up over time. In fact, a little bit later in his note, he says investors can just dollar cost average into Bitcoin over time with potentially greater results and potentially a shorter time horizon, though it may be speculative Then, of course, common stocks. John, your thoughts on his projections or what your own projections might be around this definitively rule-breaking asset class. Thanks, David.
1: Um, I, don't, I don't know whether, as you said, you know, I'm not sure what projections he's referring to, but um, the idea of just dollar cost averaging into one asset, meaning Bitcoin, um, that would go against, you know, I think one of our core um, investing principles here at the Motley fool which is to diversify right like so we, we try to get our members to get up to 25 stocks as, as, as quickly as they comfortably can um, so you know just sort of neglecting stocks and, and dollar cost averaging only into Bitcoin um, I think maybe you know maybe that's not diversified enough uh, more generally speaking, I'm conflicted on Bitcoin because on the one hand, the thing we love about stocks is that they have asymmetric upside, right? Meaning you can, lose, um, you can only lose 100% if the stock goes to zero, but the upside is hypothetically unlimited. Um, and as I think about Bitcoin, I also see the potential for massive asymmetric upside because um, one, the global money supply is just massive. It, it may be the single largest market in the world. I'm not entirely sure, but the mm. global money supply is massive. So if we're talking about TAM or total addressable market, it's got that. And then the other thing is there's only 21 million Bitcoins that are going to be in existence. And so 21 million out of 8 billion people on the planet, that suggests massive scarcity value. And so I do see the potential for for the price of Bitcoin to go much, much higher over, over time, over a long period of time. On the other hand, um, a lot of growth investors that are enamor- enamored by Bitcoin, um, you know, those same growth investors have benefited from a very, myself included, a very accommodative monetary uh, policy over the last decade. And so what I mean by that is um, low interest rates as well as um, printing money to buy bonds to buy 120 billion dollars worth of bonds every single month um and whether we agree with this monetary policy or not or whether it could lead to inflation or not is not what i'm trying to say i'm just trying to say if that monetary policy has been very good to the stock market the tools that the federal reserve have have been very favorable to the stock market And if Bitcoin comes in and completely disrupts the value of the dollar in some way, like does monetary policy become less effective? I'm just thinking out loud here. And do we want monetary policy to be less effective? Because it was, it was monetary policy that helped us recover from the recession brought on by the economic lockdown and the pandemic. And it was monetary policy, which has at least partly, I think, driven the stock market over the last decade. And so I'm not sure that the same growth investors high growth investors that love bitcoin want to disrupt monetary policy i'm not even sure bitcoin will disrupt monetary policy but these are like confusing thoughts that are like bouncing around in my head right now regarding bitcoin
2: yeah i think that's that's all really interesting john the one thing that i would say back to you is that you know i probably at the fool i've been more bullish about bitcoin than others but i actually don't Really view it as much of a currency. I don't think Bitcoin will replace the dollar <laughs> or any other currency. It's it's not it's not technologically built for that. It would make for a pretty horrible currency. Um, that said, I mean you could probably view it more as like a digital gold or something something a bit closer to that. That said, I think a lot of the monetary policy points that you were making were really interesting because if you zoom out uh, beyond Bitcoin and just look at crypto as a whole, there are Basically, what cryptocurrencies represent, they like turn different networks into markets of types, and the tokens represent value in whatever market that is. They become the currency of that market, but they also represent, you know, ownership and governance too. But what what we're really seeing is that in all of these different markets and all these different projects that are springing up, they're all. Um, doing their own monetary policy experiments. So I actually probably view it less as, at least in the, the near term or anytime soon, that something like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency will dramatically change you know, the monetary policy that the Federal Reserve or other big governments around the world put into place. But we're going to be potentially learning more about monetary policy and the effects of you know, what things can mean for inflation or like how incentives work in markets like this. Than before, and I mm. really, I really do believe that um, crypto as an asset class, and a lot of ways, cryptocurrency is a misnomer because I think a lot of people cling to the currency idea of that. There's some truth to that, but it really is more than that. It's about ownership of emerging projects being collectively owned by a community who's putting work into building something, and it represents governance and like, like, uh, you know like actually helping build and drive these different things more so than a currency themselves. And um, in some ways, you know, it's not necessarily disruptive to all companies, but it's another way of organizing people to build things and chase after big ideas. That's a really and-
0: compelling reframing, Aaron. I, I appreciate that. Because you're right. There there's too much focus on cryptocurrency. And uh, and pointing out that a lot of this is just about people collectively working together to build something of value um, is is a is a brilliant way of, of rethinking things. I did kind of make this guy's the currency mailbag item. So I'm going to go back to currency one last time. And you know I wish we could continue this conversation. In fact we probably should perhaps in an upcoming podcast, especially if I hear a great hue and cry after this month's mailbag from people who'd like to have more discussion on this podcast around crypto and or inflation or currency, kind of what we're touching on. We just never have time for it all. Let's let's do that. But let me move it on to this final note that I wanted to share. This is from P.T. Lathrop. And P.T. has written in a number of times really interesting, fun stuff to this podcast. He shared a couple of Uh, pet peeves that i didn't have time to share this week this one's a little bit loopier a little bit crazier in a good way and i'm just going to put it out there and ask you each to make a brief comment about it and then we'll we'll move on with the show but here it is in short form hey david i'm not smart but i'm smarter than i would be otherwise because of you guys i had an epiphany you might like on the drive home today pt says cash is equity I was listening to people discuss monetary policy around the world, and I'm sure economists out there have considered or understood this, but it felt like a capital F foolish connection. When countries, PT writes, print money, their ability to do so with minimal inflation is similar to a company's ability to issue more stock or equity with minimal drop in share price despite the dilution. Now, if you're the U.S. with a 20-ish trillion dollar economy, And you encounter a big problem you might be able to print a fresh 500 billion dollars with much less inflation than let's say a 10 billion dollar economy that encounters a one billion dollar problem this sounds like straight math to me guys anyways it it seems obvious now but i think it might help others understand this concept i know fools aren't forex traders i'm going to agree on that for the most part but that of course would be the foreign exchange but these dynamics help us better know long-term effects of monetary policy John, what jumped out to you about PT's thought? And if you want to throw it in the context of what we just talked about earlier, inflation and Bitcoin, even better.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, that that companies issuing a lot of stock to pay their their employees and the stocks not reacting so much um, that may be a temporary phenomenon. I'm you know I'm not I'm I'm not sure. Um, at some point, maybe the market changes its mind on stock-based compensation. That that is in some cases maybe egregious. I'm not saying it is, but maybe it is. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe investors change their mind. and They um, look less favorably on the dilution. So um, it's a great question. I probably have to give more thought to. I'm not sure. I see the immediate
0: link between um, the two, but maybe yeah. what maybe what I'm seeing here, John, is and it's a contrast. Companies really can only issue more stock that gives uh, that dilutes the existing ownership of all of us who are their shareholders. And they really are kind of transparently held accountable. It's a more of a finite resource, the ownership of a public company. However, a country's currency, there isn't real finitude around that, is it? We all still have questions about how much can you print uh, before you create potentially real problems or really devalue currency. I think we've seen some so-called banana republics that have done that over the decades and generations showing... It doesn't end well a lot of the time, but a lot of this, I think PT's pointing, Aaron, a little bit to the scale of things and paying attention to the scale. $500 billion of quantitative easing sounds like a lot, unless you're in the U.S. where it might not be so much. It would be a heck of a lot for Luxembourg.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think cash and equity are both financial tools that have a place. I don't think cash is equity, but maybe equity... Or, yeah, I don't think currency is equity, but maybe equity can be used as a currency. Um, and, you know, both are tools. I think you're right that both can be diluted into being worth less in the process of creating new shares or bills in order to to compensate for something. Uh, the difference really, though, is that equity represents ownership, especially ownership of what's possible in the future, mm. which usually comes with some type of governance power. You get to vote as a shareholder. Um, and yeah, I mean, it can be used as a currency in some ways, you raise money with it, you know, you can reward um, employees with it. Uh, But equity is far more about ownership than it is about spending, whereas cash is much more designed to be spent. It's designed to be the lubricant of an economy, not ownership of an economy. And so that's sort of how I would make the distinction between cash, uh, currency, and equity. And then crypto, to kind of tie it together, is, is sort of like a third hybrid of sorts, where currency ownership, and governance over the economy of a project is sort of wrapped all um, into one token. And as I was saying before, we're seeing tons of different experiments play out there. Um, Mm. So, you know, the way I view it is that we have different financial tools, but with you know the digitization of the world. We're seeing the rise of programmable money, where we can design it to be more flexible and have different use cases than in the past. And wow. through doing so, be able to to do to create new use cases and do some new things there. But we're still in the first inning, and it'll be fascinating to see where that ends up. Another interesting, compelling thought
0: and reflection. Thank you, Aaron. You know I had you guys on because you are two of my favorite fools. You both have deep intellectual curiosity. Uh, and a love of this subject, and a love of our future. I mean, we wouldn't all be in this if we didn't think we're trying to build a better world with all the decisions we're making right now. John is the newbie to this show uh, this week. I'm going to give you the final word, anything you'd like to say.
1: Thank you, David. Um, I'm thrilled to be on the show with you and Aaron. I have to say, um, my claim to fame is for about a year, I believe, David, I was the only other person on the planet. Tell me if this is right, that had access to your five-stock sampler uh, spreadsheet.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. I it, was it's, honored it's, it's and all privileged. Through, but but I, yeah, I shared it with you because uh, we talked about a Motley Fool Live. You had yeah. me on to discuss it one time. So thank That's you. That's exactly right. So for about a year, <laughs> I was the only one that had access.
1: And now, now I've got to come on your Rule Breaker podcast. And so um, I, I feel
0: great coming on the show. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you guys. John Ratanti, Aaron Bush, pull on. And as I wave goodbye to my friends Aaron and John, what great reasons to be subscribed to The Motley Fool, to get stock picks from Aaron Bush and team through Rule Breakers, not just Aaron, so many wonderful fools, or to get the insights and the deep thinking from someone like John Rotanti on practically a daily basis on Motley Fool Live. You know, if you're not already a Motley Fool member, this is a free plug. Yeah, it's my company, so I guess I can plug it on my podcast, but shouldn't you get started investing for real? Join rb.fool.com. Thank you, Aaron and John, for being such wonderful ambassadors of foolishness. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag item, even numbered six, takes us back to a few pet peeves this time. And we bring back Nikhil J. Nikhil Jane. thank you for writing in. You had your Bitcoin question we just spoke to. Here you list a couple of peeves. Greetings, says Nikhil. Huge fan of the weekly Rule Breaker podcast. A relatively new fool here. Joined the services in 2018. Nikhil has two pet peeves. Number one, the overuse of GIFs in private or individual group text messages. Nikhil says, I find I will text someone a message or a question, and then they habitually respond with a meme or more often a GIF. Once in a while, I'd appreciate it if they just would write out a reply. Sometimes the GIFs are totally unrelated. I sent a question of how was the housewarming party, and the reply was a GIF of a dancing creature I couldn't even identify. I'm like to myself, What? (laughs) Not to mention it takes up a massive amount of storage on my phone. Nikhil further complains, which later takes more time to go back and delete. My request to all Giffers, actually type out a text response sometimes. And he's laughing out loud as he sends that. I do want to make it really clear that the word is pronounced GIFs, which is why I have pronounced it GIFs on this podcast. After all, if it were GIFs, that would take away from using J to really make that unique sound GIF. So I know I'm contributing to a much larger dialogue that spans the internet, but my friends, it is GIFs hard. Gee, if you ever want to make the sound GIFs, just use a J. And on a roll, Nikhil gives his second. He says, I am guilty of this one. I probably am too. When people or healthcare professionals, Nikhil says, say, can I ask you a question? and then proceed to ask the question before the patient or person can respond and say yes or no. It's presumptuous, says Nikhil. Annoying, poor communication. It can be rude. And I do it all the time, and I'm trying to catch myself and cut it out, says Nikhil Jane, I hope these are broadly applicable. Hope you got a kick out of them. Love you guys. full on. Best regards, Nikhil Jane. Here's how obnoxious I am, Nikhil. If you're a friend of mine and you say, can I ask you a question, I always immediately say you just did. And then they'll say something like, can I ask you another question? I'm like, you just did. And so the only proper response at that point in the conversation is for my friend. And they'll do this to say, could I ask you two more questions? And then the answer is, yeah, go right ahead. All right. Rule Breaker mailbag item number is seven. Hi, David. I'm a longtime listener of the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. I'm a recent member. My 12-year-old son started listening to the podcasts whenever we're in the car, he especially enjoys games-related podcasts, both board games and the market cap game show. You've also inspired us to get into more advanced games such as Wingspan and Terraforming Mars. Good on you, Vikas. My son also downloaded BG Stats app on his iPad. Yep, the BG Stats app. I'm a huge fan of that app. If you're a board gamer and you want to keep a record of who scored what on that game, what date it was played, maybe even where it was played, you can log through this very user-friendly app as much of your gaming life as you want. The Gardner family has logged thousands of plays over the years, so we know each person's universal win percentage. We know their highest score ever in Terraforming Mars, etc. Big fan of that BG Stats app. So Vikas Patel continues here. Yesterday, he played an old Rule Breaker investing episode of Games, 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 and I heard you sort of making fun of Candyland. I also have an eight-year-old son with autism, writes Vikas. For him, the Candyland game is such a valuable game that's so simple to play. It teaches him social and turn-taking skills. For him, this game is no less than a rating of at least 8 out of 10, I think. I'm not complaining with your take on Candyland, but just thought of sharing it with you. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Vikas Patel. Well, first of all, Vikas, I completely understand how meaningful Candyland could be for your son. I certainly agree. It, It does some wonderful things, and for younger kids than eight, for a lot of kids... They learn colors from the game Candyland, right? It tells you to move forward two blue spaces, so you need to know blue, and you need to be able to count two. So from earliest days, a lot of kids can enjoy Candyland. Now, you've spoken to some more nuances there. You're talking about social skills that you get from playing a game or turn-taking skills, and those are also important, and I absolutely can appreciate that Candyland Is a valuable game for him and for your family. And for that, I like Candyland and I like that you took the time to say it. Now, I will say for the rest of us, and why I do inveigh against Candyland on a regular basis is this Candyland lacks one important component of a good game for me, and that is there is no decision making. You don't make any choice at all. All you do is pick a card, it tells you yellow you move your pawn forward to the next yellow space. You might get in trouble or have to fall back, or you might get a shortcut by moving to that color space. But the reason I don't like Candyland, and yes, I've intentionally sounded like an angry old man telling you to get off my lawn as I make this point, is that it teaches kids that decisions don't matter, just follow the rules. Now, let me be clear. There are some people for whom following the rules is a challenge or a great lesson in learning. And for that, Candyland, which is certainly an iconic American board game. It's maybe an internationally iconic board game. I don't know. It's got to be beloved by the candy industry because it gets kids thinking about where their next candy bar is coming from. But to me, in the end, the measure of a good game or a great game are the number of interesting decisions. So you obviously also mentioned Wingspan, which is a wonderful medium weight. Board game, or then, or a heavier weight game like Terraforming Mars, which takes hours to play and uh, a lifetime to master. I mean, those are the games that I really love for the interesting decisions that they have us make. You know, I think a great way to judge games, at least for a strategy gamer, is think of the number of interesting decisions that you made over the course of the playtime, and then that's the numerator, and then divide by the playtime. So, interesting decisions per minute. Or per hour. That's really how I think about rating games. Of course, fun counts for a lot too. And you were talking to some of the social and etiquette aspects of games as well. And I also think that's part of it. You know, what I'm thinking about at the end here is that there is a favorite game for everyone on earth. And I don't expect anybody to have my games as their favorite. They're my favorites. And you can have your favorites too, and our kids as well. So thank you for sharing. And I'm so glad we do some games podcasts here and again, so we can have a conversation like this on a mailbag. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number eight. And yep, this is going to be the last and therefore my favorite of the submitted pet peeves from our community. It's from Skippy Kitzmiller. Skippy, you and I see things, I guess, the same way. I even love that you started your note this way, fool, comma, and then you wrote two pet peeves for you. And then below that are three pet peeves. So I'm going to share all three of them, but each one starts with the one-liner and then the paragraph explaining And they're well done. And it is my pleasure, Skippy, to share this with the world. So here we go. Two pet peeves for you. Number one, apologies without action when required. Skippy writes, you spill my beer. Don't tell me sorry. Just get me a new beer. An apology is for an oversight or an accident, not to avoid a responsibility. So for example, don't say, sorry, I didn't put gas in your car when I returned it that is premeditated often put gas in the car i don't want to hear i'm sorry i want one to put some effort into avoid having to say i'm sorry in the first place apologies have value but many require penance all right that's number 1 of 2 here comes the second pet peeve from Skippy replying to a large group of people when your message only applies to a few now i think we've all seen this in the workplace Skippy Has I see this at the workplace. Most often, he writes, when a person's tracking completion of training instead of updating the list to those who haven't completed the training, they spam everyone. If you haven't completed your training, remember to complete your training. If the training is important enough, Skippy writes, for you to send an email, take the time to refine the list, not spam the persons who've already complied. Now, That's also similar to hitting reply all when you're just there to say, yeah, I'll be there at 8 p.m., but you hit reply all. So 738 other people hear that you'll be there at 8 p.m. I think we're all aware of this. Some people call this netiquette, and they say that goes against netiquette, netiquette, the etiquette of the Internet, email, if you will. So I think we can all appreciate and probably share that feeling that replying to a large group of people uh, is unnecessary. You're actually twisting it a little bit, though, because you're saying, and I like this, too, that if somebody's managing a database and lets everybody know that they have to sign up for something, and then you and I have both signed up for that thing, to me, netiquette suggests they should have removed you and me from subsequent mailings. They shouldn't give us the six reminders to everybody to sign up for this thing before the deadline when we've already done it five reminders ago. So I agree with that. And now here comes number three pet peeve of your two submitted. It says, Businesses Not Accounting, for the value of other people's time. Now, I think this is a really compelling point. A little bit nuanced, but I think we can all appreciate this. So Skippy writes, Amazon does it right. I need to return something. It takes five minutes with tons of options. Most other businesses do not. A billing error on a credit card that takes two to three hours to resolve on the phone may correct the erroneous charge, but there's no compensation for those two to three hours that you spend. Some stores state, hey, just return it back to the store. We'll take care of it. But are they going to pay for your gas? Skippy writes, what about your time? A lot of situations can only be rectified during business hours. So now I need to take off work to correct your mistakes. So Skippy, I think this is a really good point. Businesses that truly respect our time will continue and, outperforming those that do not. And I think you're right to factor in the amount of time that it takes for us to correct mistakes made by others. The best people and the best businesses will account for that time or try to reduce it as closely as possible to nothing. All right. Thank you, Skippy Kids Miller. Thank you, many fools, for all of your peeves submitted. We're not going to keep airing out peeves next month. This happens about once a year, but it sure can power half a mailbag when it happens. All right. Well, before we hit our final mailbag item, a quick reminder next week tips, tricks, and life hacks. And I'd love to hear your best. Again, our email address, rbi at fool.com. And I mentioned in particular, we're taping this episode early. I'm going to be at the Conscious Capitalism Summit in Austin, Texas next week. So we're taping this one over the weekend. So to have your tip, trick, or life hack featured next week, you need to email us probably by this Friday, like a day or two after you've heard this podcast, because we're recording next week's podcast on Sunday evening. So there's the deadline, rbi at fool.com for your best tip, trick, or life hack. All right, and that takes us to the final mailbag item of this month, and it's number nine. This comes from Brad in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota. Brad, thank you for your lovely note. David and Team Rule Breaker Investing. First off, let me say how much I've enjoyed the various Motley Fool podcasts and articles, especially the RBI podcast. I've been a stock advisor and Rule Breakers subscriber for just over one year and have truly been blessed by all I've learned to date. I can't express just how floored I was to be driving home one day in June, listening to the June mailbag, which you entitled Scuttlebutt, to find out my mailbag entry was the reason for that month's mailbag title. I ran inside when I got home. I played it for my wife, who has yet to adopt my love of The Motley Fool and investing the foolish way. She was excited for me, but it didn't get her hooked the way I'm hoping she will one day become. A little background. When I was a young lad in fifth grade, I began mowing lawns for a couple of older people in our neighborhood. Each summer, I would add a couple more customers to the point where I was making pretty good money, especially for a 7th grader. At the end of the summer I had some extra money in the bank and my dad asked if I would want to talk with his friend who was a stockbroker about investing that money. Well, I loved the idea. I met with him in his plush office at the top of a skyscraper in downtown Minneapolis and discussed this idea and he recommended two companies to me. One was a regional bank whose name I cannot recall and the other was Dairy Queen, a local company. And who doesn't love a good blizzard? I gave him $500 of my, all caps, hard-earned dollars, writes Brad. I was checking my stocks in the local paper as often as I could, so excited to see what might be happening. And then a fateful day arrived. Yep, Black Monday, October 19th, 1987. It cut my $500 investment in half. I was devastated. My broker, I thought I was so cool that I had a broker as a seventh grader, tried to encourage me to ride it out, but I wouldn't listen. And I pulled the money out even though it had lost over 50%. Well, fast forward 10 plus years and a friend gives me a copy of the Motley Fool's investment guide, which I read and enjoyed, but being fresh out of college and not making much money, didn't feel like I could put any of it into practice. Through the years since... I've had various 401ks at jobs that have been rolled over into an IRA, which has since been converted into a Roth IRA. These have all been invested in various mutual funds and they've done fine, but I've had little interest in learning about these funds and have trusted my financial advisors over the years to invest the money wisely. I have been married 15 years and my wife has an IRA as well as a Roth IRA, which are also invested in various mutual funds. Well, a little over a year ago, I awoke in the middle of the night as I am wont to do, writes Brad, and began thinking about my family's financial future. I especially began dreaming of getting us to a place where we felt financially free so we could make decisions about our time apart from decisions about our finances. This is when I stumbled upon a Motley Fool ad on YouTube. And began reading some of the free content. I quickly decided to subscribe to Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers and listen to the podcasts. The knowledge I've gained in the past year has truly been life changing. Well, I convinced my wife to let me invest half our monthly contribution to both our Roth IRAs in stocks, stocks that I'm picking as a way to test the waters of investing in individual stocks instead of just mutual funds. Well, I'm now up to 45 stocks. Which include the classics Amazon, Apple, Mercado Libre, etc., as well as some of the newer selections Asana, Airbnb, Upstart, etc. I've told my wife my dream of shifting all our investments to my individual stock selections, and she has asked me to show her my results. Well, I've tried to explain that a small snapshot of performance isn't the best indicator of whether we should shift things or not. My wife is very wise and very financially frugal, which has blessed my life beyond measure, Brad hastens to insert. This extremely long-winded email today is to ask for any advice that you can give on getting my wife on board for transferring our Roth IRA accounts from the mutual funds our financial advisor has them in to some of my individual stock selections that I've been making for the past year. Any input is much appreciated. Again, thank you for all you've done for me, my family, and all us fools fool on Brad in Inver Grove Heights, Minnesota. Well, we're right near the end of a long mailbag, Brad, so I'm sure we could talk this over in greater detail one day as a member. Perhaps you'll have an opportunity to come visit us once we actually have face-to-face conferences again, and we can high-five it and talk this out over a beverage of your choice. But for now, I'll just say two things. First of all, I think that you're doing everything right. That includes listening to your wife and making sure that you're respecting her own temperament, and how she thinks things should be invested. That's a good idea. Another great idea is that you started with a portion of your money, really a minority of all that you have in this world. When you think about it, you've started to invest it directly in stocks. That's another great step. And that's going to generate results. Now, your results are obviously short-term in nature. They might look great. I mean, it's been a strong year over the last 12 months, Or they might not look so good. The market has been up and down with some more down than up at various points over these last six months. But whether you look really good right now or not so good, you're right. One year doesn't prove a lot either direction. That's why you keep on keeping on. I would say with each passing year, your results will tell you and your wife, both looking unblinkingly at facts, at data, you'll be able to see whether you are beating those mutual funds that you're invested in. And by the way, make sure you account for the distributions of those funds and the taxes that sometimes you have to pay at the end of each year, as well as the funds fees. It's a lot less expensive to buy and hold great companies. So make sure you're looking at all the math here. But I don't think there's any substitute for going out there on the playing field and proving it. Now, one fool to another, I have a lot of confidence in you. I can hear your intelligence in your note. I can hear your good heart. And I love that you have a base of 45 stocks, a great base to build from. And you've got some great companies. And I trust you will be beating the market with those companies over three, five, 10 years. But sometimes you have to let time happen a little bit in order to change minds. I want to give credit to your wife right up front because she already, it sounds like, has given over to you her trust with half of her and your Roth IRA. So I think that's a great start. So I said I had two quick thoughts for you. That's the first and primary one. I think you're on the right path and you're doing everything right. Keep going. My second and final thought, in a lot of married couples, one of us typically cooks, the other typically washes the dishes. What if you started to do both sometimes? I'm not going to say more often than not, but surprisingly, you start to do both here and there, and then mention when a particular company that you own had a particularly good day. I feel as if a lot of life comes down to us being social creatures, and each of us has a power of persuasion to exert on the world, and it isn't just the big things. Like, hey, honey, I just took half of our money and started investing it directly. Let's see how I do. Sometimes it's the small things, right? Like the meal and the dishes.